0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you today and to be with you all. Let me just, uh, just a quick word of uh, explanation uh, before we get into our service. Uh, This is one of those Shabbats that Tanya and I have to love you in the rearview mirror, Uh, meaning as soon as the service is done, we're sprinting out the door going, we love you, we love you, bless you, God bless you, and we have to go uh, as we are uh, heading up to uh, Kansas City Uh, for this week. Uh, Tomorrow I'll be preaching at the uh, Southwoods Christian Church in Stillwell, Kansas tomorrow morning and then uh, leading a uh, Wednesday night study with them on uh, the whole picture in the Bible of baptism that we've kind of gone over here. And so uh, in the meantime, in the interim days, uh, we are looking forward to a really good time at the International House of Prayer. So really we would covet your prayers not just for safe travels, but uh, just that the Lord would uh, really pour out his spirit in those times just as we're asking him uh, to meet us in this moment as we open his word, as we dive in, that uh, the Lord would bring blessings tomorrow and later in the week as well. Last week I I began by trying to... uh, you know, kind of break down to distill kind of the goal of this whole series into three primary things, and it's basically this. As we're going through the revelation of Jesus Christ, which more and more is beginning to feel to me like the final gospel, the more I go through it at this pace, the more I'm beginning to enjoy it and love it in the same way I love Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, not because I'm not interested in the prophetic aspects of it, we're going to cover some of those things, it's impossible not to, but because it's taking me deeper, not in my knowledge of eschatological events, but what it means to be a disciple right now, what can I glean? And so these are kind of the three summations of kind of what my hope and prayer is, is that we learn what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God as a disciple of Yeshua. We said we, I mean, we love Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple who is actively engaged in seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Secondly, or the kingdom of God. Secondly, what does it mean to seek his righteousness as a disciple? And, and I just want to kind of throw out right here, uh, but last week there was a comment that was made on the uh, online, which, which was absolutely fine. But I do want to clarify that as I've been really stressing that the righteousness of God, the action of the righteousness of God, is always an act of giving, forgiving, giving, giving over. And I'm not separating that from uh, the, one of the things you've heard me say over and over again is that righteousness is not just the pursuit of moral perfection. But I want you to make sure you understand if, I've been, if I haven't been clear. I'm not saying that the pursuit of moral purity is not a manifestation of righteousness. I'm saying that so many times we come to righteousness as the uh, control of our behavior in the negative, the things that I don't do. And the problem is when we do that, it kind of takes the proactive part of righteousness out of the equation. And so I'm just trying to stress the, the definition of tzedakah, righteousness, as it's used in, the, in Matthew and in Jesus' um, Sermon on the Mount. Because righteousness, moral purity, and giving ourselves uh, to God and how we treat our bodies is definitively an act of Righteousness but it's not the only part of righteousness, all right? Thirdly, what does the revelation reveal about how to be victorious? I mean, I, just don't, I don't wanna just be a, an also ran, I don't wanna get a participation award when Yeshua comes back, although that'd be great. I mean, I'll take what I can get. But I wanna be actively involved in the kingdom of God. I don't wanna be called least in the kingdom of God. I, I, I wanna know what it means to be victorious. I don't want to be an also-ran, I want to be an overcomer. And I think studying the Revelation helps us do that. And wow, today, our study will really zero in on the discipleship aspect of seeking first the kingdom of God as we build this bridge that we've been building between the Lord's Prayer, the kingdom prayer, and the fourth seal of the book in the hand of our Master. Will you pray with me? Abba Father, we come to you now. And Lord, I am well aware that there are congregations of many flavors meeting across the land on this very same day. And what I pray for us, I pray for them, Lord, that you would open their hearts and their minds as well as ours to the leading and guiding of your spirit uh, to the truth of your word and not the opinions of men. And so, Father, I pray that you would sift anything that I share today that may be less than accurate, If, if I err in that, Father... Uh, Remove that from our hearts and keep us solely focused on that which is your word and your truth. Lord, teach us to pray and teach us how to be kingdom disciples. I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So it all began with a simple request. Master, teach us to pray. Little did the disciples know that Jesus would be teaching them so much more than than they had ever imagined in the words of the kingdom prayer, the prayer of the kingdom seeker. But if, as we have learned in the revelation of Jesus Christ, that there is always an antithesis of everything that is holy and righteous and good, then we must understand that there are those who are seeking the kingdom of God and seeking his righteousness, then there will be others who are seeking another kingdom. There will be others who are seeking another kingdom with a completely different currency, the currency of unrighteousness. Now, this contrast comes leaping off the page as we read about the breaking of the fourth seal. So, I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 6, either if you have your, the Bible with you or on your cell phone today. And I hope that you have one or the other because I don't, I apologize, I'm, I'm not. Uh, Good about getting screens up there, but I think we need to have the word uh, on our lap, in our app, but more importantly, in our heart. So giving you a moment to get to Revelation chapter 6, just verse 7 and 8. And when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living being saying, come. I looked and behold, and an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given over them, over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. Wow. What a lesson on discipleship. And all God's people went, what? <laughs> so we're going to, oh, I, 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 I was telling you, Chris, I, I hate this term, because it's so kitschy and everybody uses it, we're going to have to unpack this today. You know, okay, so we're going to unpack this today. There, now I'm cool. I'm not wearing, I'm not wearing skinny jeans. It's not happening. <laughs> say, say. Nobody needs to see that. But I guess there is a time when you have to unpack something and, and kind of look at it. And the truth of the matter is, this passage is actually an amazing starting point for understanding discipleship, because it teaches a very incredible lesson. Be sure you know who you're following. So let's start by looking at what John is seeing and what we're being shown So first of all, let's just kind of break down the the things we see. Of course, it begins again with the thundering voice, although the term thunder isn't used in this one. It is of uh, how they begin. The fourth living being. Again, last week I tried to stress this is angelic, not demonic. They have custodial control. The four living beings are at the four corners of the earth. Because that is where they stand before the Lord. Now, let me clarify something I said last week when I stressed that they're angelic and not demonic. As we go through the book, that does not mean that God does not use or allow the demonic to serve his purposes. But one of the great things about the book of Revelation is that it should take the fear of the demonic and put it in its rightful place because they are pawns. They do only what God allows them to do, and it's really, can you imagine if you, uh, uh, you, you thought you went through this great rebellious thing and you found your independence, only to discover that you were still obeying the person you thought you, you know, got, you know, got away from? I mean, that's not exactly Freedom. But that's kind of what happens with the angels and the demons. They're they're not omniscient, they're not all-powerful, but they are servants of the Lord, and and the demonic, even though they're in rebellion, just end up being used for the Lord's purposes. So the second thing I want you to focus on is the ashen fourth horse. Again, I want to remind you of the thundering voice of the four living beings, and that, remember, we talked about how uh, how appropriate that was in the calling forth of these horses. Do you remember the passage we read in Job? Job chapter 39, verse 19, God is questioning Job, and he asks this question, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with the mane? I, I think the Saturday that we were actually dealing with that, I didn't finish part of that point and I want to share it with you today God is asking Job are you the one giving the horses these things which which parallels perfectly with what we're talking about here because as each one of these horses comes forth and it's rider they only come forth in the context of the will of God they're they're coming forth to bring about what he wants but God asked Job are you the one giving the horse his might and his mane and the answer is no God gives these things Each of the four horsemen are given to do the things they are described as bringing forth upon the earth. Uh, As the horse has no might or mane without God, so they have no power and authority other than what God gives and permits. They can only do what God has given them to do. You know what? God has given us some stuff to do. Amen? God has given us authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. He's the one in charge, not the demonic. God not only gives them their might, the power to do the things they're allowed to do, but I love this because he also gives them their mane. And each of these horses and riders are called forth by the thundering voices of the four living creatures. Here's what I just found that I thought was so cool. That I'm not sure I finished and shared this with you. But the Hebrew word that is used there in Job 39, 19 for the mane of a horse is also translated as thunder. I mean, Job, God literally asked Job, do you give them their might and their thunder? No. That comes from God. And that's what we see in the the breaking of these seals and the calling forth of these horses and their riders. The point is, apart from God, they got nothing. Nothing. The heart of the kingdom disciple is not afraid of the thundering voice of the angels because we've already listened to the roaring lion of our king. We already know who we follow. We already know who the source of things all this really comes from. Now, the color of the horse is translated in several ways. The New American Standard, which is one, the the translation I normally use, uh, describes it as ashen. i got to be honest with you, I don't even know what that means. All right? I mean, I had to look it up. The New International Version gets close, says it's a pale horse. The King James Version also says pale horse. The New Living Translation probably gets it most accurate when it translates it, the color, as pale green. I know you're sitting there thinking, but Brent, you, you promised me a sermon on discipleship. Hold your horses. Huh? Okay. The Greek word for the color of this horse is chloros. It may sound familiar to you. It's where we get chlorophyll. Chloros, green, pale green. Philos is the plant or the flower. So at this point, again, you're probably thinking, what does this possibly have to do with uh, discipleship? Just hang with me. Notice also that this rider is the first one that gets a name. His name is Death, Thanatos, Notice that this rider, and this is where it starts getting very interesting, this rider named Death has a disciple. Oh, there's the bridge. This rider has a horse and a rider whose name is Death, and look how it describes Hades. Hades is following after him. And the word that is used here to describe Hades following death is the same word that is used for the disciples dropping their nets and following after Jesus. It's not merely tagging along. It's attachment. It is service. It is connection. Death has disciples. Interesting. Are you surprised? You shouldn't. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If life has disciples, then so does death. And and we are beginning to get a very clear view of what following after death is going to look like. You see, we're going to have a choice. Who are we going to follow? So what is Hades? Hades is the abode of the dead. Is that a Hebrew or Greek concept? And the answer is yes. Okay? Now, I want to jump ahead for a very similar description that we're given in Revelation chapter 9 at the sounding of the fifth trumpet. Revelation chapter 9 verse 1 says, a star falls from heaven and the key to the bottomless pit is given to him and he opens it and more plagues and judgments come forth as a result. This judgment is described as locust coming forth that looks like horses prepared for battle. Now, we're eventually going to get to their description, but for now, I just want you to take notice of this phrase that says, And they have a king over them. It's an army, but the army does what? It follows the king. Did you see this, uh, this concept of follow? Because that's what a disciple is a disciple follows after the master. They are connected to the master. Our master is the king, and we follow him. The verse goes on to explain that the, uh, angel of, that this is the angel of the abyss, the bottomless pit. In Hebrew, he is called Abaddon, which comes from the root meaning ruin or destruction. Who wants to line up behind that guy? I mean, <laughs> his, if, if, if you're going to pick a name, say, hey, follow me, Don't follow the guy named Abaddon, okay? His name tells you where you're going. Yeshua's name tells me where I'm going. Salvation. In Greek, the verse goes on to to, to give the name in both Greek and Hebrew. In Greek, his name is Apollyon, and it means, and I thought this was really cool, to cause to perish. Does that sound familiar? This is the king people will follow to their ultimate destruction and perish forever, separated from God in the bottomless pit. This is the king that leads the other people who don't do this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How do you keep from going to that pit? How do you, you choose who you're going to follow? You choose who you are going to seek after. This is all about discipleship. I say again, you need to know who you're following. And you need to know where they intend to lead you. Because death has disciples. And it ends in the pit and the grave. Now notice that it is from these that these four deadly judgments come about, the sword, famine, plague, and beast of the earth. These are the judgments that come upon the followers of death, and they lead only those who will not believe in whom the Father gave and sent to lead us to life. All right? John records that they are given authority, again with the given, given over a fourth of the earth. Now, this fourth of the earth, um, we tend to think, you know, we could stop and talk about all the numeric aspects of this. We're not going to. Because I just want to simplify it and have you focus and remember where these things are being called forth from and who's calling them. They're being called forth from the four living beings who stand at the four corners of the throne of God. What is that? It's the altar of God. All right? All right. Which brings us right back to the source of where all this is coming from. You see, the four living beings stand before the Lord at the four corners of the earth. And this is really important because you cannot see this and not think about the altar of God in the temple. And there's just a couple things I want to remind you about that. And we're gonna, when we get to the end, we're going to loop back to this. Just a couple of reminders of the altar. The altar was the draw near place. We've talked about this before. Leviticus begins when you want to... You know, draw near to the Lord, you bring your draw-near offering, and you draw near. All those words, the coming before the Lord, your offering. The the altar is the draw-near place. You didn't go there, you didn't have to go there if you didn't want to. It's the kind of place that people who wanted to be at the table of God, that's where they went. Those who drew near to God did so by bringing offerings that were placed upon the altar represented by the four corners of the earth. Now my point is simply this, that those who follow after death bring about and incur the four deadly judgments upon the fourth or the four corners of the earth. They are the antithesis of those who follow after Jesus seeking his kingdom and praying the kingdom prayer. They are the antithesis of what it means to draw near to God through Christ, This is what happens, those four deadly judgments, this is what happens when you choose to follow death and Hades. You say, well, oh, Brent, don't worry, bro. That's not me. I'm not doing that. I hope not. But sometimes we may get closer to it than we're comfortable with admitting. So the disciples, let's build our bridge. So the disciples say, Master, teach us to pray. And one line in the prayer that we're now focusing on today, the next phrase, is one that quite honestly can be a bit confusing until we frame it in the context of kingdom-seeking discipleship and drawing near to God, and then a whole different picture comes forth. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, the next line in the kingdom disciples' prayer is simply this. And do not lead us or lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, now before I deal with the awkwardness of that verse, I want to stress the real significance of that verse. And the real significance of the verse is the action that you're, you're calling on God to do, which is to lead us. It is to carry us. I cannot stress enough that the emphasis of this section of the prayer is discipleship. And here's the danger. We rush past this, because we get to this place, and what are we taught to do with the Lord's prayer? Well, this is the place, you know, maybe you've been taught the four-part outline, acts, adore, confess, you know, what's, what's the T? Thanksgiving, supplication. There, there, there's, this is the place where we, we confess. This is the place where we deal with our sin, and we tell God, how terrible we've been! Now, listen. Repentance is absolutely essential in our prayer life. Amen. All right. The problem is, we, and I know, I know as a man, I've never done this, where I rush past really trying to understand the problem, uh, and I want to get right to the fix. I, I know it's a man thing. I can fix that. Have you read the instructions? No. Who needs instructions? A map? (laughs) That's for wussies. They don't know where they're going. I don't need a map. I don't need instructions. But church, we need to slow down. Because before we can become victors, we have to become followers. And those who follow after Christ have to slow down and pay attention to what he says. Because there's no victory over temptation or the calamity that sin brings into our lives if our passion is not first to follow the one who leads us. The priority of this moment in prayer is not just to be reminded so that I can tell God I'm a sinner again, although that is important. The petition is not just about the sin in my life. The petition is that I want to be a disciple. I want to be led. Because that's what a follower does. And and so I'm, I'm I'm not trying to say that dealing with our sin is important. I'm saying before we jump on to that, because listen, is it just me, but... Satan, you want to have this great prayer time with the Lord, and and suddenly all you can think about in your flesh is your sin. And, And what does it do to your motivation to pray? It just kills it. And again, I'm not saying don't deal with your sin, but just understand the focus of this prayer isn't just about how much sin you've committed. The petition is not, Lord, let me remind you, of how bad I am. The petition is lead me. Take over the reins of the direction of my life. You see a kingdom seeker, you you can't be a kingdom seeker if you're not first and foremost a disciple. You see, their king leads towards death. Our king leads towards eternal life. Their king ends up, leads you into the grave in the pit. Our king leads us out of the pit and literally out of the grave. Their king leads to a sword. Our king leads us towards the truth of God's word. Their king leads you into famine. Our king gives us our daily bread. Our king is literally our daily bread. Their king leads to pestilence and death. Our king leads to restoration and life. Their king devours with the beast of the earth. Our king is Lord of heaven and earth, and he is surrounded by four living beings and 24 elders and the whole host of heaven. So go ahead. Choose one. Because that's what this kingdom prayer is about. Choosing who you're going to follow. You see, we can sit around and spend a whole lot of time worrying about why did he ask us to ask him to not lead us into temptation and never really focus and pay attention to the fact that we're actually praying for him to lead us. Are you with me on that? Do you see how we kind we, we of we, we miss a central point? to get to the thing that's always kind of on our mind,
1: oh, I'm so bad.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's just me. So, let's go ahead and deal with the awkwardness of it. Because it sounds like we're asking God to not be the source of temptation in our life. Am I right? And lead us not into, do, do I really have to ask God to not lead me to be tempted? So, There's something going on here because, (laughs) as my Down Syndrome brother used to tell me, that don't make no sense. (laughs) So I think maybe there's something I need to look a little deeper at to fully understand this. And I think James really helps us in the book of James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, he says, let no one say, when tempted, I am being tempted by God. So if... No one is allowed to say that. You certainly can't pray a prayer thinking that God is the one that's going to be the source of your temptation. That cannot be what Jesus intends. James says, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone." Can it? <laughs> He himself does not tempt anyone. Amen? Do I really need to worry about him leading me to temptation? Not really, but there's a reason for why it's said the way it's said. James goes on to help us understand what's really going on with temptation. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust." Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And now, you're death's disciple. Why? Because you allowed yourself to be carried away. I want you to focus on that because that terminology is very important to the Lord's Prayer. I want you to notice that the term James uses when he describes what happens to us when we are tempted, that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So how is, what's the best possible solution for that? Don't get carried away. Don't let your flesh and your lust be the one that is leading you. Are, are you hearing me? Be a disciple of something other than your own selfish fallen flesh. God does not tempt people to commit sin. And you know what? He can't be tempted to do that either. He he doesn't get selfish. He doesn't get self-centered. He doesn't have a moment where he suddenly says, well, I'm just going to go ahead and tempt them. God does not tempt people to commit sin. God does test his disciples to allow us to demonstrate faith, and there's a difference. But notice the kingdom prayer is asking God to lead us. The same Greek word that James uses for how we are carried away by our own lust is the exact same word that Jesus uses in the Lord's prayer when he teaches us that we should pray that we would be led and literally that we would be carried away by him. Away from temptation. So we would be carried away. Now, how does that happen? I choose who I'm going to follow. You see, the point of the prayer is not just the destination. It's the plea that as a kingdom disciple, I would be, I would so submit my life that. Instead of being carried away by my flesh, I would be carried and led by my Savior. I mean, it's a choice. You can allow your flesh to carry you to death and become death's disciples, or you can be carried away by Yeshua, by the Spirit of God, to life. I hope, is this helping at all? It's just, again, this prayer isn't about the destination or just about the destination. It's about the one who's doing the caring. Now notice how much this contrast with James' description of when we're carried away by our own lust. What is lust? Our own selfishness. And here's where we can step back and remember that righteousness most certainly does include our pursuit of moral purity before the Lord. That is definitively a manifestation of our desire to be led to offer ourselves in holiness. So, how does the kingdom seeker? So what is lust? It's selfishness. So how does the kingdom seeker overcome this? Praying to be led by our king away from that temptation, praying that we will be led by his righteousness and not our selfishness. And my friends, please hear me. That is the only prescription for overcoming sin in your life. And I need you to hear that, so I'm going to say it again. That is the only prescription for overcoming sin in your life. How do I know that? Because until the Messiah comes and fully redeems this fallen tent, this flesh has a mind of its own, and it's, not, it's like Pharaoh. It ain't just going away. It's going to chase me down. When did Pharaoh stop chasing? <laughs> when Israel crossed the Red Sea. When a choice was made, you say, well, what choice was made? They didn't have to cross. I mean, think about what they were seeing in that moment. <laughs> we just saw this these heaps of water. Who's to say they're going to stay there long enough for me to get across? You're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to cho- Choose. Our prayer isn't a worrisome request that God won't tempt us, but that we will be led to deliverance. Deliverance is the destination that we're seeking. If you do not finish the sentence, you can misunderstand what the prayer is asking God. Uh, You can misunderstand that the prayer is asking God not to tempt us, but that it's not But that's not what the prayer is about. It's seeking God to be the one who carries us away from that temptation unto deliverance instead of being carried away by our own selfishness to destruction. The first phrase of that line is simply setting up the greater destination of our desire. God does not tempt us with sin. Church, please hear this. To do so, he would have to use deception because temptation is based on deception. And he cannot deceive. I am the way, the what? Truth. God does not deceive people. You see, and this, is, this helps us understand the difference between a trial and a temptation. You see, temptation is based on a deception. A trial is based on a difficulty. A trial is based on a difficulty, whether physical, emotional, financial, whatever it is, and it presents an opportunity for us to decide, I'm going on with God. That's not based on deception. That's based on a difficulty that God, are you going to believe that I can get you past this? Lord, I don't have enough money to pay my bills. Are you going to believe he'll provide? That's a difficulty. Now, if you let yourself get carried away, you'll turn it into a deception. Well, Lord, if you were really the God who was leading me, I wouldn't have this problem. Come on, church, talk to me. Sometimes we end up allowing ourselves we carry ourselves into deception because we're facing a difficulty. It's not the same thing. God has everything we need for both. The fourth seal points us to a world that is consumed with its own lust, being led by their own selfishness to destruction. The four deadly judgments come forth as the natural result of being carried away by their own selfishness. This is the destruction of those who are perishing. That's what happens. Now, You know, we could take time to just, uh, we won't today, but just all the different things that we could talk about, the fruits of the Spirit, the four promises that God makes to those who will come to Him in Romans chapter 8, the things He predetermines to do for us, to conform us to His image, you know, to transform our minds, all these things, you know, to share His glory, to pour out His, I mean, all these things that He is planning to do with us, we need to see those in contrast to these four deadly judgments, Because they're both the result of discipleship. They're both the result of someone making a choice. And so now let's go back to our pale green horse. Because I know you're saying, okay, let's see, build this bridge. I want to show you from Scripture how this unholy selfishness carries us away. There is a story in the book of Acts where Peter calls out the real source of a man's problem, and it's something every believer, including myself, needs to hear. So let me give you some background. Philip, this is in Acts chapter 8, Philip has been preaching in Samaria. And great things are happening. Many of the Samaritans, uh, probably hundreds and hundreds of the Samaritans, are coming to faith, and many are being healed of all kinds of illness, and, and miracles are just breaking out everywhere. I mean, every time I read about Philip in the New Testament, I sometimes wonder, why don't we spend more time talking about Philip? Because <laughs> this guy, everywhere he goes, cool things happen with Philip, Right? And so Philip is up in Samaria, and he's doing all this, and and Luke records in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, that so many are getting saved and so much great stuff is happening that uh, that there was much rejoicing in that city. Wouldn't you just love to be used by God in a way that uh, would cause great rejoicing in a city? That would be pretty cool. Now there was a man there, Luke chapter 8, verse 9, whose name was Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Luke actually records that they called him, and I, I man, I don't know how you let anybody say this to you and, and don't correct them, but they literally called him the great power of God. I mean, if you're ever around somebody and they tell you, hey, I am the great power of God, let me tell you what you should do. As quickly as you can. Because I don't know what the radius of a lightning bolt from heaven is. I mean, I, I read this story, I'm like, how is this guy even walking? He's been using sorcery, magic, but here's the thing about this guy. Simon loves this. He loves the accolade of being called the great power of God. Now, church, we're going to get kind of personal here. Why does he love it so much? Because Simon is a wounded narcissist. Now, now I'm going to prove that to you. That's not just Brent's you know diagnosis he's a wounded narcissist the magic was merely a means to an end to impress somebody and simon loved being told how important he was it's really a ma- a means of self-medicating now the good news is that Simon became a believer in Jesus and was even baptized and followed Philip and was amazed at the great miracles taking place. So that's that's kind of the upside of the story, that Simon saw that whatever it was he was doing and they were so willing. I mean, doesn't it kind of? <laughs> Not long ago, I was talking to a person and uh, they were uh, telling me about this rabbi, and they were they they told me this story about how this rabbi had prayed for this person and how that person had gotten healed or whatever. And I, in my mind, I was, I was trying to be real nice because what I wanted to say is my rabbi walks on water. My rabbi pulls people out of the tomb. My rabbi opens blind eyes from birth. I didn't. It wasn't the right time. But it's amazing the accolades we'll give to people for things so far less. And Simon even realizes, dude, in, 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 in view of what Philip is doing, he knows he's a rank amateur. He's a trickster, he's a huckster. Compared to the genuine manifestation of God's power ministering through Philip. But something kind of unique that we're not going to have time to go into all of this today, but there was something unique going on in the conversion of the Samaritan people that was a little different than what we had seen in the earlier chapters in uh, the book of Acts, and actually what we're going to even see in the book, Acts chapter 10, when the house of Cornelius. Uh, comes to faith. And the difference is this, the Holy Spirit did not immediately fall upon them. Now, we can, we can have another message someday. We'll talk about, you know, whether that's normal, not normal. But the point is, that for whatever reason, that was the scenario. So the apostles in Jerusalem hear about what's going on in Samaria, and they, they dispatch Peter and John to go to Samaria Specifically, so that the believers there could receive the Holy Spirit. And I think this is why this is kind of an abnormal situation, at least as it's told in Scripture, is because it's kind of interesting that uh, here are Samaritans, but they're going to wait on these guys to come from Jerusalem to lay hands on them. If you know anything about the Samaritan-Jerusalem conflict, it's kind of kind of wild. So they begin to lay hands on those who had received Yeshua and been baptized into Him in water. And people began receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon sees this, and he doesn't just want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Simon wants to be the guy who gets to lay hands on other people so they can receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? Up until this point, okay. I mean, I'd like to be a guy that could impart that type of ministry and blessing to a person's life unless I want that because it makes me look good instead of making him looking good, then Simon commits a huge no-no. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out some silver. And he goes to Peter and John, and he, asked, he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. To say that didn't go well is a bit of an understatement. Peter was not too happy with that request. So let me just pick up in Acts 8 verse 18. Now when Simon saw, Simon, or Simon the magician, saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver Perish with you! Wow. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have no part or portion in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, to the Lord, if possible, the intentions of your heart may be forgiven you. And then, in verse twenty three. Peter discerns the source of the problem. And church, those of you who are here, and those of you who will listen and watch someday, I plead with you to hear this. I plead with you to hear what Peter sees in the heart of Simon the magician. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, I wish I knew the rest of the story, whether Simon's repentance was genuine. I'm just going to hope and trust that it was. But um, Peter sees something going on deep in Simon that, quite honestly, most of us do not want to see in ourselves or acknowledge could even possibly be active within us. It is the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. And can we just take a moment and just be impressed with, that is a great line. (laughs) I mean, that is such an amazing sentence. The gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. I mean, that's just a great line, I just got to tell you. But yikes. What a diagnosis. Imagine going to the doctor and saying, yeah, I know exactly what your problem is. You have the gall of bitterness and are in the bondage of iniquity. You can use that one someday, Chris. (laughs) I mean, how do you even recover from that? Folks, please hear me. What is Peter really saying? He's saying, Simon, there is something else that is leading you from within and it it controls you and and if you do not break free from it, it's going to lead you to destruction. It's going to lead you and your money money to perish forever. So how in the world does Peter say to Simon, how in the world does what Peter says to Simon have anything to do with the fourth seal and the rider on the horse, that it rides, my friends. The word for gall in the Greek is holon, and if you study its root, you'll discover that it's connected to that Greek word for the color of the horse. It is connected to pale, the pale, sickly green color used to describe the fourth horse. We are living in a world. And this is why this applies to everybody in this room because nobody in this room has not been touched by this. There is no one in this room that has been unaffected by what's been going on in the world around us. Satan knew exactly where to begin when he went after our families, our marriages. We are living in a world that has become so in love with its own selfish lust that we destroyed the family and we have brought destruction. People are running amok doing whatever their selfish lusts carry them away to do. And that destruction of the family, please hear me, has created an epidemic of wounded people, many of whom are so wounded they don't even know it. Because narcissism is a self-defense mechanism against that wounding. Now, if you don't know what narcissism is for the young people, narcissism is just a life control. You are consumed with yourself. But here's the trap. The narcissist is the last person in the world to recognize they're a narcissist. And it doesn't matter how many people are behind them battered and bloody and bruised because of their narcissism. But narcissism's root is bitterness. And church, that's why everyone in this room needs to pay attention to this. Because there's not a single one of us that have not had things happen in our lives that Satan wants to use for bitterness. There is nothing that will get you up on that pale green horse faster than maintaining bitterness in your soul and if you want to be led as a disciple of Christ you have to know you at some point are going to have to deal with the wounding and the brokenness and the bitterness that satan wants you to follow after the writer is writing the color of bitterness that brings destruction to the world but you know what i am not nearly as worried about listen that's what's going on in the world But what about what's going on in the body of Christ? I mean, how long will we ride the horse of bitterness? How long will we let pestilence and death destroy our souls? How many relationships will you let it destroy and kill in your life? How long will your tongue be a a sword? Narcissism is self-medication. And, and if you're like, well, is that me? All you have to do is look back in your wake. How many people have you hurt with your mouth? How many people have you undermined? How many times have you told people how spiritual you are? How many times have you run around telling people what your gift is? Can, can, I, can I let you in on a little secret? You don't need to tell anybody what your gift is. If you have it, they already know it. Come on. Because every gifting of the Scripture isn't taken upon yourself. It's given by God and acknowledged by others. You know, there's this movement out there. Everybody wants to be an apostle. Everybody wants to be a prophet. You know what? If the Lord ever decides to use you in that fashion, everybody else will know it before you. I mean, listen, I, I'm saying this as a preacher. You know, when I leave here, we're going to get in the car, and I'm going to ask my wife, well, how was that? Did I mess up? You know, we have a little joke. Every once in a while, i get ready to go up, and she'll say, don't be boring. <laughs> I mean, I'm a preacher. I, I don't want to be boring. I don't want to be irrelevant. I don't want to waste your time. I want to be successful. But for whom? For me, for my glory, or for His? We're talking about being being delivered from all of this. Am I concerned about the four deadly judgments coming in the world? Yeah, but there's nothing I can do about that. That's them. Hello, this is our house. This is our house. And this is a place where we have to get honest. If we're going to pray the kingdom prayer, and Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, if we're not willing to face the very fundamental reason that we stay attached to our sin, we're never going to be a kingdom disciple being led to life. We're just going to ride that ashen horse to death because we won't change who we're following. And the only way to get, listen, that brokenness, that woundedness, man, that's real, isn't it? You know, I've told the kids at uh, Camp Yeshua for many, many years, I've told them the truth about things that happened to me when I was a kid. I've I've been very honest with them. Because that woundedness, that bitterness will control you until you decide to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and not your selfishness, even if you feel like you have a right to be selfish with your pain. Well, as we wrap up, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. The disciples' kingdom prayers, Lord, deliver me from evil. Deliver us, deliver me from the evil one. But the wording of that last line in Greek is, has some very specific Greek rules attached to it. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you what they are. But sometimes a verb, I guess I am going to tell you, the way a verb is used, it's, the Greek language is so amazing because it has a form where, I can say, where you can say, this person is doing this action. It also has a form that this action is being done by the person. Are you ready for this? For the person. And that's what's happening here. When we pray, deliver us from evil... We're literally asking God to deliver us from ourselves for him. Deliver us by yourself for yourself. And here's another little thing that makes this, and now we're all the way back to our altar terminology. Because that thing that we pray, Lord, deliver me from evil, literally means, Lord, draw me to yourself. Draw me to yourself for yourself. Let me be a kingdom-seeking disciple and draw me. Just like you drew Israel to the altar, draw me away from my sin, away from my temptation, away from the need to, to, to medicate myself, away from the need to, to let my flesh, Lord, draw me to yourself. Because only in you, in fellowship with you, will I ever have what I need to overcome my temptation. the lion of the tribe of Judah, has roared. He has broken the seals, has opened the book, and he paints an amazing picture of the choice that we have. We can become disciples of death and Hades and follow him right on down into the pit and the grave. And we'll do that. As long as we keep letting ourselves be the one carrying us. Or we can passionately pray, Master, you be the one that carries me and carry me away from myself. You be the one that is leading. You draw me to yourself. Because that is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The worship team is going to begin to play, and we're going to sing a song, The Waymaker. And as we sing this song, I just want to encourage you during this time, I'm going to invite you to stand or sit, whatever you want to do. Maybe it just seems all too much. Maybe the sin has had control of your heart. The wounding, is, it's, it's just you've, you've lost the belief, you've even lost hope that you could even ever let go of that bitterness. That's a lie. That's your, sin, that's your flesh carrying you. See, sometimes to be carried by the Lord, we have to put down the things we're carrying. And so during this time, as we sing this song of praise, we think about the Lord as our way maker. I promise you, there is no wound in your soul, no gall of bitterness he cannot heal. There is no iniquity, no bondage to sin he cannot break. If we will seek him with all of our heart, we will find him and he will rescue us. Let's worship.